but like journalism was like you can't manipulate anything Mm -hmm. you can't fake anything you're supposed to be a fly on the wall i was like i love that you just get to see the world the way you see it and share that with other people and i was like this is it Mm -hmm. this is what i want to do what's going on y'all you have just tuned in to the black shutter podcast on this show I invite black photographers, filmmakers, editors, and creative business folks to discuss their experiences and share their wisdom. You will hear about their work, their challenges, and their inspirations. My name is Idris Talib Solomon, a creative director, photographer, and filmmaker based in Brooklyn, New York. So if you dig photography and you love the culture, keep your mind open and your headphones locked. This is the Black Shutter Podcast. Photography is a blend of art, science, and technology. Many folks get into the craft because they were inspired by a beautiful photo. Others saw their parents or family members with the camera and emulated them. And some discovered the joy of documenting moments exactly as they were happening. No interference, no manipulation. Our guest in this episode appreciates photojournalism because he gets to show the world the way he sees it, as a fly on a wall. He's had internships at papers in some of the smallest towns in the United States, which prepared him for freelance life in New York City, which isn't for the faint of heart. But New York thickens your skin quick, and as a photojournalist, this is only a benefit. His clients include the Associated Press, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and Google. Michael Noble Jr., welcome to the Black Shutter Podcast. How you feeling out there, bro? Hey, man. Thanks for having me. How you been? I'm doing good. I'm doing good, man. How you feeling out there, man? You know, I'm feeling good. It's 70 degrees in January, so I'm feeling all right today. 70 degrees. Not where I'm at, man. Where you at? I'm out here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Tulsa, Oklahoma. Yeah, it's a little different than New York. <laughs> Just, just a little bit, just a little bit, man. Yeah, just a little bit. We, we didn't get all the snow, y'all got. We got all the heat. Sheesh, uh, y'all out there like close to the desert, right? Uh, seems like it right now. <laughs> man, the snow is crazy out here. It's like it's not white anymore. It's like yellow and, and brown. Wow. And uh, I'm, I'm trying to keep my son off of it. He, all he wants to do is play in the snow. I'm like, yo, stay away from the yellow snow, man. Like, <laughs> stay away from the yellow snow, man. That's, we got to disinfect you when we get in. But what I gotta ask is, how's your how's your New York Olympics? You got that long jump unlocked? New York Olympics. Yeah, oh, you know, jumping over the puddles. The puddle. Yeah, you know what? <laughs> I just invested in um, more like thorough boots, and I just stomped oh, through yeah. the puddles. I'm not even <laughs> jumping no more. <laughs> wow, man. So. Uh, cool, yo, Mike. Thank you for for joining uh, the podcast, man. I, I appreciate it, man. It's always good to have a friend on the show, somebody who I knew before the podcast started. Um, you know, it's always a good good experience, man. So, thank you for joining. Well, thank you. The pleasure's on mine. Absolutely, it's been great seeing all the guests you've had and the conversations you've had come, you know, through. Yeah, now you now you're part of the crew, so. Welcome, we welcome the to the family. Exactly, <laughs> exactly, man. So, Mike, tell us where you're from originally. So, originally I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. Mm. And uh, then I went to, I mean, so I grew up in the Midwest, and then I went to school in the South at Western Kentucky. Okay. 
So, um, Western Kentucky, man, this is it's so crazy. I think within like the last the last few episodes, it's been like a bunch of Western Kentucky alumni, man. Like, what's going on at Western Kentucky? Like, why is this place just pumping out photographers like a factory? That's the exact question I had before I went there. Because <laughs> when I was looking at colleges, I was like thinking it's going to be New York, L.A., maybe Chicago has the best photo school. And every result kept coming back, Western Kentucky, Western Kentucky. And I'm like, I don't want to go to school in Kentucky. <laughs> but I got there and I saw the environment and everyone there kind of becomes a competitive family. Not like as competitive as like succession. But, like, everybody wants to see everyone succeed. <laughs> and then everybody wants to see them then go, all right, well, they're doing good. How do I push further? That's great. I, I love healthy yeah. I love healthy uh, competition. It gets a little unhealthy, but never dirty. <laughs> yeah, you know, sometimes we need, we need that to kind of break out the box. But as long as it's in the spirit of us all getting better together, you know, um, I watched the Wu Tang uh, series, um, American Saga, on Hulu, and when RZA was recruiting everybody, he was like, "Yo, I want all of y'all to to like real crew, but when you get in the booth and you drop your 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 bars, I want you all to like be competitive and feel like you're trying to take out the next dude. And if you do that, then the song as a whole is gonna be stronger." You know, so it's exactly. like, you know, still, still sharp and still. I mean, one of the biggest things I think that leads to Western success is not necessarily the teachers of the program, but more the culture that's been instilled. We do this uh, weekly review where everyone submits their five best photos or sometimes there's a theme or something. And the photo comes up. And we do a version of, like, you know, CPOY or college and judging, but it's with, like, 30 students. Mm. So some say in, some say out, and then the members of MPPA ask people why they say in and out. And it could be, you know, they don't like the photo, and it's like, well, what do you like? So you get a bunch of feedback. And but you, then le- you also see... You learn, how to, you learn how to uh, critique and speak about photography in a... In a, in a critical way, not just like, oh, I don't like it. I don't like the oh. way that person looks. You learn how to describe and, and discuss photography, right, in, a, in an academic way. For sure, and especially because you remember, you got in that room, you have most of the seniors show up to every event. And then if you have a spattering of others, so you get to see the difference between seniors that have been doing this for four years and the freshmen that, you know, are just started. And it pushes you to grow because you're like, I don't want to show a bad photo during that. I I want to be like, I, I know other people are here shooting this event. What can I do that's different? Mm-hmm. And it pushes you a lot. And But at Western, there was not a whole lot of diversity in that room. <laughs> like, uh, of the people that you've had on the show, you've gotten 70% of the ones that graduated <laughs> recently. <laughs> And I got one more coming up, man. So I think I'm, I'm going to be at around the 85, 90% mark, man. Yeah, pretty much. Of black I can photographers. I together yeah. who's left. <laughs> Sheesh. So then, okay, so the folks that have been, the, okay, we had uh, Alyssa Pointer on the show. We've had Harrison Hill and you, right? 
all coming yeah. out of Western Kentucky, but you have a strong, you all have like a strong focus on photojournalism. So is it that Western Kentucky has a strong PJ program or, or is the photography program as a whole really strong? It's just that that's the, the lane that you choose to, you chose to go in. Nah, pretty much if you go to Western and you don't eat, sleep and breathe, photojournalism <laughs> is not going to be enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Because it's it's a photojournalism program. It's not photography. It's not you know visual art. It's Got it. Photojournalism. So, so spec- from day one, you're taught. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're taught to see everything in a photojournalism way, and that has a, some beautiful parts to it. Like you know this, you you're a visual creator. How many shoots have gone exactly to the letter of the law? <laughs> Almost none. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And if they do, it's, it, it might be a little boring. If it turns out exactly the way you want. Exactly. And I think one of the parts that they instill you early is like adapt. You showed up to a shoot, your your flash won't work. All right, then you know how to move someone near a window. Mm-hmm. All right, the window's not working. Then you learn how to pose differently. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of problem solving. And those skills lead to people being able to do whatever they want. Like, not every Western PJ goes on to stay in newspaper, but if you take that problem solving and, like, not taking a failure, you move on. But, like, the whole program is focused on you being a newspaper photographer. And granted, that's a dying breed, but I think it teaches you so many skills. You come out like a Swiss Army knife, and if you have a focus you want to go into after that, you have all the skills to do it. So I like that. I like that um, photojournalism can serve as like a really solid foundation for, you know, creative, visual problem solving on the fly, right? Oh, Um, for sure. Because I've met some sports photographers recently, and there's no shade against them, but they only know how to shoot stuff if it's perfectly lit, because that's what they always shoot are sporting events that are perfectly lit. And they only know how to shoot action. But if you called them to shoot a portrait, they're like in a hole like, oh, I don't know what to do. Hmm. versus, like, you call a photojournalist, they're like, I can do that. Do you need photos of fans, too? <laughs> <laughs> For real. No, I, I like that. I like that as a foundation, you know. Um, I would say photojournalism was sort of like a foundation for me uh, photographically, um, but I also had, like, other interests. I had other visual skills, tools in my, you know, in my kit, um, so that kind of all like blended together, you know? Um, but yeah, yeah man, photojournalism, photojournalism is a solid foundation. Um, and, and, and also for learning how to see the world and see your surroundings, you know? For sure. Cause we have to take, I mean, I can't count how many times here at the Tulsa world I've had to go find a feature and, you know, just like a little slice of moment looking into the world of it's a beautiful weather. What are people doing? It could be a gray day and it can be 70 and you still have to find a photo. <laughs> you can't be like, ah, oof, I wish. I wish there was some golden light here. It's like you find a way to make a boring scene. I mean, and that's the thing, you know, it's also you, you, you have to use what's available to you. And if that's the day you're out, you have to, you have to make it work. And it's an honest portrayal of what's happening. It's like, this is the day in the life, and today is actually cold, rainy, and cloudy, you know, but mm-hmm. people are still alive and enjoying life. So, right, let me find that particular exactly. moment 
and document that. Those, those might be the day when people with other backgrounds may not want think that there's a beautiful photo to make. Mm-hmm. And I think I think there are a lot of benefits to a photojournalism background, but I definitely think it's a base, and you got to add to it. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and that's where you get some beautiful, like you get some Alyssa Pointers and some Harrison Hills, who they're photojournalists for sure, but they also put their twist and a spice to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you got to put personality into the photos. For sure. So. Mike, tell us about tell us about your upbringing in uh, St. Louis, Missouri. Like, wh- you know, what was it like growing up in your family when it came to the arts? So my dad was a West Pointer, so he grew up in the military. <laughs> grandpa was in the military. <laughs> my grandma was a, a a librarian. She she accomplished a lot of different stuff in public servitude Mm -hmm. and then you had me who honestly I wasn't that artistic I was big into sports for forever Mm -hmm. and then the the question came down to I was state champion in all these weird sports (laughs) and and then the question came down like what's my going to do for college because like none of the sports I wanted to do I really cared enough to go to college for if that makes sense Wait, wait, name some of these sports, though. What's some of these weird sports? I was a rower. There's no money in that? In, like, the Ivy League? Not. There is if you go to the Ivy League, but after college, it just disappears. Oh, I mean, yeah. That makes sense. (laughs) And also, I don't think I had the Ivy League attention span. Let's just say that. (laughs) And then I was good at rowing, and then I was a three-time state champion in uh, cycling. (laughs) Wow. There's, there's no money in that sport. <laughs> I did cross country, I did track, and I did soccer. I think that's all of them. Oh, so wow. like I never knew what to do, but I like doing something different all the time. And I would, I wanted to be good at what I did, no matter what. Okay. And I and, like that that sports the um the sports background goes well with having that competitive photography, you know, um, you know, aspect. For sure. And so what kind of led to it is I had a uh, a professor named uh, Ms. Vodica, and she was an art teacher, and she saw something in my early photography that she petitioned the school to make up two photo classes for me. For you? Because our school really only had one, and most people use it to get an easy A and moved on. But again, I don't like to be bad at stuff. <laughs> So I was really focusing and, and trying to learn as much as I could, but the program was only a semester. And she spoke to the school into creating like a private course that I would help other students, but I would get to do the equivalent of like a photo two and a photo three class. And a lot of that was art-based. And she said, you know, maybe you should look into photojournalism and, or art. Like those are two ways you can go. And so I went and toured a couple of art schools. That wasn't it. <laughs> and the second I saw photojournalism, like I saw a portfolio from one of the students at uh, OU or Western at the time. And I was just like, this is what I want to do. It's, it's different every day. You never really know what's going to happen. You get to have some cool memories, of, you know, going to a big game or I got to photograph yada, yada, yada. 
it just seemed like an exciting life. And then, you know, I, I sat there and spoke with my parents and I was like, I think I want to be a photojournalist. <laughs> my dad's a lawyer and a judge now. <laughs> so it was like, I want to be the hyper creative one in the family. And, and I think, I think the talk went well because I think my dad knows I don't like to do anything halfway. Mm -hmm. Like, if I'm going to start it, it's got to be the best. <laughs> or I have to at least be improving on it. And so he was really open to it. And when he toured Western and kind of, you know, we talked with the professors about, like, what did I get from being at Western and, and, and committing to doing this, it was something I really, really wanted to do. Nice. So it sounds like your family was supportive. They were supportive once they saw how committed I got towards it. Because I started reading, you know, Gordon Parks. I started looking up different kinds of photojournalists and what they do. And I started just trying to figure out what was important in it. And I got from my Gordon Parks and stuff is connecting with your people. Like, it's really a pe Photography is really a people job. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. More times, like, the camera's there, yes, and you have to learn how to use it, et cetera, and there's a whole bunch of tools to use outside of that. But the difference that putting me in that room versus someone else in the room is the personality and how you connect with the people you photograph. Because mm -hmm. if you walk in there with a big ego and start telling everybody what to do, that might work in some forms of photography. But odds are it's not going to get you very far in photojournals. <laughs> you got to be sensitive and vulnerable with people and honest and, and, and people will tell you things they don't tell their families. Yeah. Yeah. Just because you're there and they, and you open up enough that they feel comfortable to share things that they don't normally share. And usually in photojournalism, you did, if you're photographing a person, you know, that, that person plays a certain role in the story. And mm -hmm. there's a certain feeling of importance that we give them that they may not experience a lot, you know, on a regular basis. So the fact that someone cares enough to photograph them as part of a larger story, they're like, Oh, okay, cool. This person cares about me, even though it's a very short interaction and they may be, you know, they may be open to like sharing a lot more than what, what you expected, you know? Oh, for sure. There's been a number of times where I'll have a conversation with, with the person we're photographing and I'll ask him before I leave, like, is there anything we talked about, like, you don't want me to tell the reporter, like, mm -hmm. if we were just talking, you know? And usually it's no, and, and for example, I'll bring back some tidbits that the reporter didn't know to ask or talk about. And it, so it can help with the, with the reporting, and I'm not there to really, I'm there to visually report, but I'm not necessarily there to, you know, add to the story. But with that, with uh, I, I think I think I told you I shot for a while there for a couple of years a bunch of those neediest cases for the New York Times. Yeah, I remember that that series. Yeah, yeah, and I mean that's a those people. Every person that's pretty much included on that list has gone through an incredible hardship, and usually still is. And for them to want to be vulnerable enough to share their stories. And then also, like, put their face to it sometimes. Like, one of the stories, a woman got came out to her parents as gay. They stabbed her and kicked her out of the house in the middle of winter. The parents stabbed her? Yes. 
the dad's stabbed her. Fuck, man. And in her hand. And so she needed stitches, all that. Jeez. But she had applied to be a dog walker, right? And and part of the perks of that job would be she could get a car, like a work car. And then so she started sleeping with the you know in the car, and that's kind of where we met up with her. And we did that story and she, she bared her truth of what she went through. And there was a little GoFundMe set up and she had launched, you know, her own personal business. And now from that story, she's blown up and she's doing a, a zillion, you know, a zillion appointments and is so much happier. And she got to, you know, kind of get that experience off her chest and be like, I'm more than that experience. But that was something that had me down until I got, you know, a hand to pull me up. Wow, man. And that's that's great. And, you know, it sounds, that's one of those stories that, you know, helps you to, helps a, a photographer to, to feel like, yeah, this is where I need to be. This is the type of work that I want to do. We don't always get that, you know, especially as like a freelancer or sometimes even as staff. You know, um, because we cover so many different types of stories, but when mm-hmm. we do get those stories that are that are heartwarming and and also can potentially help the person that we're photographing, you know, put them in a better space, you know, then it all sort of clicks and, and it makes sense why we do what we do. For sure, those are the days when you're like, "This is why I like it," because my pictures can help make can help humanize someone. Because if you just read that story. You didn't see a photo. It, you know, you may be like, okay, you picture whoever you picture in your head. But when you have to see that person and you see they're a normal person like you and I, mm-hmm. <laughs> they're not a monster, they're not a villain, they're not, you know, somewhat, they're a human being. And then we got to do a follow-up to that story and she was literally like dealing with the dogs she was specializing in were like dogs that had been previously abused. And she was showing how she, she got this dog that used to like nip at everyone to be just a teddy bear. <laughs> and so we got to make a really great photo for that. And then it led to her getting more donations later on. So it was just like getting to do that twice was awesome. And directly seeing the reaction to your photos. Cause like you said, a lot of what we shoot, we may shoot, especially as a freelancer, you may shoot it, send it in, and you never really hear about it or where it went or if it ran. <laughs> yeah, for real. <laughs> you don't you don't get a uh, you don't get an alert or anything. I mean, they got for Google alerts, yo. Exactly. You know, times I shot something like, oh, I can't wait for that to run, and then like I, I asked the editor like a couple months later, like, oh yeah, it already ran. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> Cool, yeah, dope. Thanks for the heads up. Yeah, that, you know, that was cool. We spent a week doing that. It's no big deal. <laughs> Crazy, man. So, yeah, it's great to hear that you're able, you were able to do, you know, stories like that, especially do a follow-up story, you know. That's yeah. that's that's pretty cool. Um, and to see, like, such a good turnaround for that person. Um, but, you know, help us get to, like, how did you go from being, you know, athletic you know, being involved in all of these sports to eventually taking a, a, a photography class or taking a class in the arts? Like, what happened in between? 
that made you that that piqued your interest? Uh, it was my grandpa. My grandpa gave me. I still have it. It's a Nikon and F two, I think. Because he, uh, he, when he was uh, stationed in Korea, he did a bunch of photography for like his uh, unit. And it was his camera that he used over there. Wow. And he gave it to me with no film. And I used to like run around and pretend to take photos. And then one day he said, you know, like he explained to me how to put film into it. But I did it wrong. <laughs> but it was still the idea that I could capture these little moments forever. And I thought, I want to get better at this, even if it's just for like family stuff, mm-hmm. because in high school, you know, not all these classes are all that advanced. And I took that first class and I was like, there's so much to learn and there's no right way to do it, which I'm a person with really bad ADHD. So like there not being a definitive way to do something is awesome because mm-hmm. that means I can use my own way to get to that conclusion. And when I saw that and that there was so flexible, you could do anything you wanted to tell a moment. And then, but doing that on the artistic side, there were no rules to it. And it was like to do anything you want. But like journalism was like, you can't manipulate anything. Mm -hmm. You can't fake anything. You're supposed to be a fly on the wall. I was like, I love that. You just get to see the world the way you see it and share that with other people. And I was like, this is it. This mm-hmm. is what I want to do. And then I ended up getting accepted to Western. And then I had a good four-year run there. So what did you do after you graduated from Western? Well, it starts during there. I took, uh, I did a year off of school uh, after my sophomore year. So I did a total of uh, six internships. Six internships. <laughs> You know it was crazy, man. I you know, I didn't go to I didn't go the um the traditional route. I didn't go like mm-hmm. the academic route for ph- photography. And a lot of the photojournalists that I've I've met or spoken to over the years, you know, um they tell stories about these internships just being in like some of the most random locations all over the oh, country. Yeah. Like Yeah, why are you to a different place? <laughs> My wow. freshman year, I did a uh, Fort Knox military base. <laughs> God. So that was like, uh, they have like this really advanced uh, ROTC program that pretty much is like two years of learning done in like two months. So you pretty much get embedded with a, a group of J ROTC people mm-hmm. and you do like public information, you know, our military photos and all that. And then next year, I did, um, what was the next internship? I did it in Burlington, Iowa, a town no one's heard of. <laughs> and uh, that was like my longest internship. That was like six months. And then I did Cedar Rapids Gazette, which is in Iowa, Chicago Tribune. Then I went back to school. And I did, uh, what is it, San Francisco Chronicle. Jeez. And then my last one was AP New York. These are all internships. Yeah, and I think how, that's all of them. I might be missing one. And how long is the average internship? Uh, it's normally summer. It's so three months, roughly. So and, and you got at Western, s- you're competing against all your friends for these. <laughs> wow. I lost a couple of internships to Harrison. I'm sure I might have peaked out a win somewhere in there, <laughs> but. <laughs> 
Wow, so you it, got it, to see you got to see a good part of the country with these interns. Yeah, and it, it let me see what kind of newsroom I wanted to work in mm-hmm. because small town newspapers have some some benefits because you're usually not as busy as you are at like a Chicago Tribune, and you can get some more wholesome moments and spend some time. But they also have a lot of other issues. And then you go to a big newspaper, and it could be so big that they're just filling your plate with as much as you can handle. Mm-hmm. And you're kind of just shoveling what comes up the best you can. Mm-hmm. And then, like, at a wire service, you know, speed is king. Mm-hmm. It's not exactly how what's the best photo you can take. It's what's the quickest one you can take and get on the wire. Mm-hmm. Because if your photo's up 10 minutes before the competition, that's more sales, yada, yada. Did you get every head of state in the room, et cetera? Versus at a small paper, you're not worrying about that. You're worrying about making the best moment you can, but it may be at a quilting event instead of <laughs> the UN. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, you, And you had a range of these experiences at these different mm-hmm. internships? From like a 20,000... Circuit, uh, sorry, a 20,000 circulation paper to whatever AP's number is, which is like in the millions. <laughs> so you, you learn something different along each way. You see what you want to do, you get to sit down and you get mentored by the photographers there. Even if they aren't actively mentoring you, you passively see, you know, who has a good work. Like, is this the level where like you have the best work-life balance? Mm-hmm. Is this a place you want to stay and you want to grow for a bit and move on? Is this a place that you want to call home for the next 40 years? Because when you're the intern, people are really frank with you. <laughs> Versus, like, if I try to email these people, most of them wouldn't get back to me. Mm. But once you're in the door, but, once you're in the door, yeah, but once you're in the door, <laughs> you have people telling you the office gossip and who's what and oh, there's going to be a new position opening up in Hong Kong. Like, wow. So yeah. what 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 did you gravitate to the most? Like, what was the the type of newsroom that you said, all right, this is, I could vibe with this. This is sort of the direction I want to go in. Oh, the one that I wanted, and if I could just teleport there right now, I would, was the Chicago Tribune. Mm. And why was that? Because... Because they they had a stat, they had a visual team that knew what it was like to be a photographer. Because a few of them were ex photographers, they weren't like career photo editors, and they knew when they knew to give you enough time on certain assignments and features to go make photos that were yours and unique. But there were also enough cool things happening that the rest of the stuff on your plate could be some pretty cool stuff. And the bar for photography was so high because of how much talent was there. You like never wanted to misstep, but you wanted to grow. So it was always fun balancing those two. Plus, I got to fly in like one of those like Blue Angel style planes <laughs> and yeah. do a photo shoot. So that was pretty. <laughs> Yo, photo shoot from the sky. That's amazing. Yeah, it was cool. We got to down type a bunch of GoPros and you got to like, because originally we were told. You can bring your camera in the cockpit for this shoot. And they were like, psych, you can't. <laughs> but I knew that that might be a possibility. So we bought a bunch of GoPros and we put them on like time lapse mode and just kind of hoped. 
So it would take a full red photo every 10 seconds. And we had four of them in different places. Oh, man. But it made the front page. We got them spinning over, like, the entire city. It was a beautiful photo. Nice. But the entire time, I'm just staring at the GoPro, hoping it doesn't just fly off the wing. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So you and I met in New York, you know. um, Yeah. And we were actually neighbors at a certain point. We were um, mm-hmm. living, living in Bushwick. You oh, know yeah. what I mean? So how'd you end up in New York? You you were here for a few years, right? Yeah, so I ended up being here for four or five, roughly. Uh, I did my internship at uh, AP. I think I had, and I had already graduated. And I had like a month left on my sublease. And I was like, well, let me try freelancing here for, for one month. We'll see if I can make it. And I reached out to a bunch of, you know, I did the beginning of every freelance career, which is finding as many uh, photo editors at publications you want to work at or know people at and emailing them and saying, hey, I exist. I'm here. If you need me, I'm here. And 90% of those you don't hear back from. And I heard back from a few. And then a couple of them gave me well, you know, a test or a sign or an assignment. And I ended up making a decent amount of money, more money than I made in a long time that first month. Nice. And I was like, this is enough to put a first and last down on an apartment. Let me see if I could find an apartment. And then I think I found the Bushwick apartment, which was relatively cheap for the time. And I was like, I'll just stay for one year. If it works, it doesn't. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, I got to make it work. And then like the next month, those two editors that hired me each switched jobs. <laughs> and so I had like no more clients. <laughs> Isn't it crazy how that works, man? Like you, yeah. You know? I was going for being. I was like, why do they say this is hard? Look at me. I'm over here making what I made for my internship in a month. Like, this is easy. And then they they got you know publications sometimes just rearrange their photo editors, and they might become an international photo editor, and they have no use for you. Mm-hmm. And you're just kind of like, well. <laughs> start all start all over who took your job and and you know i mean you know this editors creative directors they have their five that they want to call that they've worked with a lot that they know won't fail them and they kind of call once they get past that five it's kind of a crapshoot who they're going to call mm-hmm. and that's you know that's five photographers have to say no before you could even conceivably be in some of these people's minds yeah, and then so, it's still it's still like a, you're still considered a one off if you're not in their top if you're not their favorite. Yeah, and like not every shoot goes perfectly. You know this. Not every shoot, you know, the person may show up late when the light was supposed to be good. The shoot doesn't get communicated very well. Things happen, and you may not you know hit a grand slam on the first hit, so you may never hear from them again, or you may hear from them the next day. And so it taught me so much about like building a network and how to email people. Like I found out like new photographer as a subject line isn't great, but if you say your name works a little bit better, (laughs) not because I'm famous, but just because like people are like, I don't know what's this name. 
and they get suckered in and they see that it's, oh, it's a new photographer. You also don't want to. You also don't want to broadcast yourself as new. You just because then they new in their minds might sound like inexperienced or amateur. Oh, for sure, for sure. And and I've made like I've made subtle spelling errors once or twice in email and just kicked myself and been like, well, that's the reason not to hire me. <laughs> in reality, they never even opened the email, but yeah. That's the and thing. You, we make up so many. Yo, when you're freelancing, you make up so many reasons why you don't get call back, calls back sometimes. You know, it's like. For sure. You're like, oh, I should have embedded a hyperlink, or no, I should have put the photo first. I should have picked a better photo first. In reality, yeah. you know what it's like. You get like 50 emails a day, they're going to sit in the crack, and the last thing you want is someone saying, hey, you want to give me money? Mm hmm. They got like, they, they're jumping from project to project, man. Like they, as long as they get their photos in, the story runs. You know they don't got time to, to get sit down and give you you know play by play feedback. You know, and, and and that's one of the benefits I thought I had was coming from Western Kentucky is because at least other Western people would try and give you the time of day. And because like for me, I have no photo. Ne- I have no like I don't have a photo mentor. I tried to find some, never really worked out. But I just, I don't have a photo, like, mentor to be like, I'm going to call my buddy Greg and he's going to, you know, hook you up. Mm -hmm. So I had to use the Western Connection, which helped me with, like, three or four editors. And then it was kind of like reaching out to to fellow black editors or fellow black photographers. Like, reaching out to, you know, Brent Lewis and being like, how do I do this? Mm Mm-hmm. Because Brent's pretty good, the best he can, about giving people the time of day. And I think this is when he was still at the undefeated. Oh, wow. And I would reach out and just be like, you know, am I doing this right? What's, what do you like to see? And just getting some guidance. Yeah, that's the and thing then, like, we have Demetrius to find. Demetrius Freeman helped me so much. Yeah, his work is on. his work is amazing, man. His work is amazing. Really good uh, photographer. I mean, he was my first photo editor at the College Heights Herald, our college newspaper. And then I realized he lived kind of near where I ended up moving to after Bushwick. We became like close friends. And he's, you know, a decade, not a decade. He's going to laugh at me for saying that. He's a couple years ahead of me. So we're not in the same league, you know, with what we're doing. He's now a staffer at the Washington Post. Mm-hmm. But he was able to give me guidance of what he did when he was a young freshman or a young freelancer. Or when he was not, when he had a month where no one called, like, what do you do? <laughs> because if you have a good month that month, that money doesn't come until the next month. Yeah. <laughs> and if you have a bad month, it's not messing up your current month. Well, I mean, it is, but it's messing up your next month. And you can have a good month, and the check gets lost in the mail, oh, or it gets man, lost in the shoot. system. I did a shoot for an unnamed company. I will not name them, but they are a net ninety company. Oh my god! And they were like, "Well, we're such a big company; it's so complicated." I'm like, "This money is nothing compared to what you pay Yo. people." <laughs> like, Yo. Give me my three. Give me my three fifty, and, and let me move on with my life. Exactly. Or give me interest <laughs> on it. Come on. 
And, and but like stuff like that is stuff they don't necessarily teach you in school. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, you may go do five assignments this week, but you ain't seen that money for at least a month. Heaven forbid your email get lost and they're like, oops, sorry, we'll get it in the next one. What's up, family? If you're enjoying this episode, do us a solid by leaving us a five-star rating or reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play. We appreciate the support. So on that note, we're going to get back into the show. Peace. Yeah, I mean, freelancing, uh, uh, freelance photography or freelance photojournalist gig is not for the faint of heart. It's very challenging if you have a family, if you have people you need to support. Um, I could imagine. You know, I, lived off, I lived off ramen and stuff and had Yo, no problem with it. Peanut, <laughs> peanut butter and jelly. You get you make sure you got a loaf of bread, peanut butter, jelly, carton of eggs, and ramen noodles. And you can you can live for you you can live off that for a while. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, just, just don't go visit the doctor because they're gonna be like, What's up with this cholesterol? <laughs> right, if you can afford you know i mean not, that's what led to me i'm not trying to jump ahead but that's what led to me leaving new york oh bro uh a, a photojournalism you know career freelance in new york for you i don't know i mean i'm sure there's people out there who are doing it who live in new york but that is very challenging it's, it's challenging if you work in corporate america in new york you know what yeah, I mean? It's an exp- this is a very expensive city, so I can only imagine some of the challenges you or other folks in your position might have. Like, what were some of the things that you had to deal with, um, you know, from professionally in New York? Oh, I mean, as you know, New York's a hard city to live in. It fights you. And some people enjoy that fight, and other people, it costs them a lot. But, I mean, just getting everywhere. Like, if you had an assignment... The trains could ruin your day. Oh, AB's running local now. Or sorry, A trains run local. All right, well, that adds 40 minutes to the trip. Or an Uber. It, it, it was just you, so many people getting people to like give you the time of day because they were hustling their own hustle was a lot. And like for me, what was the final straw for me was, was, was when COVID came because. That was also when the BLM protests were really big in New York. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, thousands of people a day were going to, you know, five to six protests. And work picked up a good a good bunch. But I was also living with, like, an amino-compromised elderly person, so I couldn't necessarily go to every public event. Because I was trying to get tested, like, every two days. It was a whole thing. And, like, even that was expensive at the time because I didn't have insurance. And, like, the places that could do it rapidly cost money because I can't be down for a week when that was happening. But, I mean, my roof caved in. (laughs) Mold was spreading. Landlord didn't want to fix it. Health department said it's only nine feet of mold. If it was ten feet or bigger... We could help, we we could do something about this. You kidding? And me, that man. they won't come back out for two more months. <laughs> you lying, bro? <laughs> no, really dude, that? that's why I was like, <laughs> man, what jobs are available right now in any state? <laughs> oh man, New York, yo. <laughs> so I was going to I would walk around in a normal mask, 
and then I would come home and put on an N95 and sleep in the N95. Oh, man. Because I wasn't trying to inhale mold because I don't have health insurance. But it's just like New York is such a city like that. Like if your roof caved in here in Tulsa, your landlord's going to fix it. Wow. And it's, it's also not as expensive of a city. Oh, for sure. I mean, they literally pay people $10,000 to move here. You got that ten? You got that ten? I did not get that. I did not <laughs> because my job is not considered remote, even though I never go to the office. Oh man, that's crazy, but, man. Hey, you, yeah, you want to come down here for your rent? You're paying. You can probably get a McMansion down here. Sheesh. And the thing <laughs> is, now you know, with so many people working remote, if you know, as long as you work in it, uh, your job is based in like uh, a major city metropolitan city where you can make those dollars like like you were living in that city like new york chicago la or whatever then Mm -hmm. you can live in the midwest and just like you said have that mini mansion but you're spending la money living in kentucky or in wisconsin or whatever exactly i mean just for your rent difference like i mean so like so being here I pay half the rent I pay and my apartment's probably five times bigger. And, and that's not even a good deal here. Like, wow. I did. I, I, cause I got my apartment over FaceTime. Um, but no, New York is just such a hard city cause there's so many other competitive and talented people. And sometimes you may be better than that person, but you only may be a few steps ahead of them. Of, of the person that like is their go-to hire. And sometimes it's just it, it, they met that person first. Exactly. You know, and you just you just not in that person. You're not in that editor's radar because, like you said, um, you're a few steps behind as far as like in their network. Doesn't mean that the yeah, other photographer is better than you or you're worse or anything like that. You just didn't just didn't meet them in time. Like in a in a city like New York versus Tulsa, there's miles difference. But I would say. Here, the quality of your work stands out because for the same 45 minutes we're talking about, like, to get to an assignment, you know, Brooklyn and Manhattan, I can get roughly 70 miles here Wow! in any direction. So they're more looking for someone who's really good because they don't have a network in Tulsa, Oklahoma. They have, but they, but they, but versus, in, you know, in uh, New York, they might have the best, their favorite best photographers in Brooklyn, and you live in Brooklyn. You're not getting anything from that anymore. Versus cool. here, it's like, hey, can you go to Texas? <laughs> wow. And it's like, yeah, okay. I, I mean, think- I don't really freelance here. I, I've taken a couple, but I'm just saying, like, the, the difference in how networks even work is different in New York versus here. Mm-hmm. Because two mile different in zip code. They may be looking for a Queens photographer, and it may only take you 10 minutes to get for Queens. But when you reach out to them and say Brooklyn-based photographer, they're like, I don't need a Brooklyn guy. Mm-hmm. I need a Queens guy. Or a girl. Yeah, man. So, uh, it's a, it's a, such a fast-paced uh, industry, you know, especially for freelancers. You know, if you don't pick your phone up, if you don't respond to that email in time, that joint is filled. Dude, I helped move a friend once, and the time it took me to walk down four or five stairs, I lost like a three thousand dollar freelance assignment. <laughs> yo, it, it bees like that. Yo, it bees <laughs> like that. 
and you get so mad because you're like, I could have just answered. I would have said yes. And I, it maybe was literally seven minutes from call, me walking down the steps, going, I'll pick it up when I can put this box down, putting the box in the truck, going, oh, snap. Hello, Bill. Boom. But see, After that, but three see, the, 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 the ill thing about that, though, is like, did you want me to photograph that? Or did you just want a photographer to photograph it? Because, you know, I think we all want to get to the point where editors are calling us directly because they want, you know, they want us. They want like Michael Noble Jr. to photograph this, right? They want Idris Solomon to photograph this. And if you don't pick up, it doesn't mean that they're going to go fill the the gap immediately. They're going to wait to speak to you push the deadline a little bit, you know. And those are, to me, like the best assignments where I feel like they call me for me, for my eye, for my personality, for my vision. You know what I mean? And not just because I'm just, like, number four on the list, you know? Oh, for sure. Because normally the etiquette went, they would call you if they didn't answer or leave you a message saying, like, hey, you got an assignment on Friday. If you're free that time, call me back. And they usually would email you. So I'm like, in seven minutes, they didn't complete the email yet. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you can't you can't get upset about that. And I and I think a lot of it you become really reflective on your photography, which I think is necessary. But in a city like New York, if you're not a superstar stud, like we talk about how hard it is to be a, a photojournalist. Because it's like when you see photojournalists, because it's not you know, use the analogy of knives, like, because you are a Swiss Army knife, they can kind of shove you and do whatever you want. You're not the, you know, Japanese steel knife that's designed for one thing, like a commercial photographer. Mm-hmm. I see commercial photographers doing shoots that photojournalists do for 350 and their their budget for that shoots five grand. They have two assistants. They have all this rental equipment. <laughs> and, and five grand is on the lower end, bro. Yeah, and they're, and that's the thing, and their editors not giving them crap, and it's like you went out for lunch and tried to expense it, and they're like, oh. <laughs> "You think you can get this, bro? It's a some, foot long, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Extra cheese? <laughs> what? You got two meats? <laughs> we can only pay for one meat. I'm sorry, Yo. we're gonna cut that dollar sixty out of here, bro. That was the illest. That was the illest experience I had, where I, I did a commercial gig. Same amount of effort, same muscle memory skill, all of that stuff, but with completely two completely different budgets. And I was just like, wow, this exists? Like, how does this exist? And how is it that it's so hard for people to make that transition from like traditional photojournalism or documentary style photography into like lifestyle, editorial, publishing, commercial type of photography. Because there's literally you could you could be a photojournalist and shoot life, lifestyle stuff, arguably with the same ethics and not break any of the rules, depending on how the shoot is done. Right? Absolutely. Like, and you're using the same equipment, except for the photographer has to own the equipment if you're a freelance photojournalist. Versus they're like, yeah, we're getting it from like a rental house. Yeah, there's a rush delivery fee of 80 bucks. You know, that's on the publication for giving to me last minute. Every photojournalist I have a freelancer, 
when they get a call that the assignment's tomorrow morning at 5 a.m. and I need to be there at 4 to, to, to get into the building, takes the assignment and is like, all right, I guess it's what I got to do. I've never seen a, a photojournalist be like, actually, you're going to, that's kind of entering my like rush rate. <laughs> <laughs> Or like, you know, that's a extreme, you know, extreme work hours rate where we're going to have to add, you know, two times to the price. Because if you get, if you say no as a photojournalist, like, you know, I'd really like to do that. I remember during COVID, the early parts of COVID, and I asked to get an Uber and they like asked me what the rates would be. <laughs> and I'm just like, are y'all pinching pennies that it's not, <laughs> you'd rather be getting sick get COVID on a subway than the $80 Uber. Wow. And yo, that was a big deal in um, during COVID. A lot of uh, papers sending photographers out without PPE, without like personal protection. Name a single commercial photographer that would do that. Exactly. Exactly. And if they did, they would have a hazard pay. I remember I didn't even... Some publications were like getting very uh, specific on what was a hazardous situation or not. Mm. And you live in New York. You know what it's like during COVID. You leave the house, you pass a hundred people. Mm-hmm. Like you have, it's dangerous to be taking pictures during COVID in New York. Mm-hmm. Unless you live alone and you live on a street alone and you, no one ever walks by your car. <laughs> Yeah, and then to get on the train was basically exactly. just like a, a hub. And for and for them to pretty much tell you you don't matter because of a hundred and eighty bucks. <laughs> but then I know there was some publications that were giving you hazard pay. So like if the times day rate was like four fifty, I think four fifty a day, yeah. they were giving you six hundred for yeah. hazard hazard. But I think that came after a, a backlash of a lot of... Yeah, it came after a bunch of backlash. Yeah. That was not like, hey, we're going to do the right thing here. Yeah, but other places... And, and as a like... photographer, as a photo, I mean, I don't know if we need to teach it better in school or freaking unionized. I don't know what it is, but in every other profession I've noticed, there's a... I don't want to say haggling. There's a negotiation on price. Mm-hmm. But but there's something about photojournalism with it being like an air quote flat rate that they're like listen six fifty that's it that's it that's it you know any expenses that are you know necessary <laughs> and like when you're a freelancer you don't have the backbone even like the backbone like from your wallet to justify arguing sometimes because you're like I can't lose this editor over a twenty dollar lunch. Well, yeah, because the editors are the gatekeepers. And, yeah, and then it's over. And, and then it's just like, well, okay, I can't make rent now. It's a spiral over a $20 sandwich. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's crazy because, you know, editors talk. and Oh, they gossip. Yeah, they talk. They talk. And, you know, you don't want to be, you don't want to come across as difficult to work with, you know. Oh, and, well. Especially you know. minorities, and I know a lot of the women that I've like spoken with that are freelance, they're so scared to say anything because then they get, you know, oh, she's so difficult to work with. Mm-hmm. Or especially black women. 
Exactly. Black, black women get it really difficult. I can't, I can't imagine. Like, I mean, there are better people to speak on that, but from listening to like my friends that you know are black women and women of color talk about that, they get told all sorts of stuff that I've never heard, and I've gotten into the same arguments. But getting labeled argumentative by a by a photo editor, it, no one ever goes. Yo, Idris, who was that argumentative photographer you worked with like two weeks ago? <laughs> the one that's always starting all that trouble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to hire yeah, the him. The one that wants hazard pay because of COVID. <laughs> yeah, that's the one. I want to work with her. I want to work with him. Yeah, and that's that's crazy because that puts us at a crazy disadvantage where we don't feel like we can speak up um, and and set boundaries because. Why would they give us what we asked for when they can just go down that the list and find another photographer who's going to just jump at the opportunity to do oh, it? Exactly. And a lot of these places, you know, whether it's like New York Times or Bloomberg or Reuters or AP or whatever, you have a lot of young photographers who want to work with these with these um, companies, and you get some young ones who really want to work with these companies. Like they'll drop everything. To just go out there and do it, and so it's not until years of experience where you realize, like, oh wow, maybe it's just not, you know, um, it's not worth it, or you know, um, maybe there's another way of doing this. There's a lot of things we don't know in the contracts as far as um, ownership or joint ownership oh, of no. our photos. If there was any advice I could give to young people right now, if they own your stuff, you don't own it. You might as well like don't sign these agreements. I get some of these wire services want, you know, you want to work for them, they're a huge name. I talked up how much I like AP. But, like, you can shoot a photo, like, at a protest, and it goes viral around the world, and you get nothing out of it. It shows up in music videos where they were paid at least six grand to use your photo. Mm -hmm. So, Arguably ten plus times what your day rate probably was, and and for the wires, unfortunately, they pay the least. They pay less. Yeah, they than, paid you the least for that, but you did they, that because you needed to make rent. And they and the wires go on to resell. The whole point of the wires is to sell your photos to to other publications, whereas like a, a newspaper like the Times or Washington Post or whatever is mainly for the story. They still resell photos, but I think you get a percentage. Oh, uh, you get a percentage, but I get a check every now and then. I and go, you huh. still have joint, right. you have joint, you have uh, joint ownership. That would be the best thing I would say. I would say my not, your number one priority, you should bend over backwards for people that you at least get joint, joint. ownership. Yeah. And um, I know you mentioned you were out photographing during BLM. And yeah. this is where I learned the value of ownership is speaking to some of my friends, some, you know, fellow photographers who were out in the trenches, like you, you were out in the trenches. And I'm sure that um, a lot of publications were reaching out to you because you were out there almost every day, f you know, yeah. feet to the ground. like 60 days of that first 100 days. Right. Yeah. And, and um, yeah, so I'm sure a lot of different places hit you up. And it was weird because there was that, remember that, that note that went out of, like, photo black photographers to follow? Yeah, yeah. That like chain thing went on, and I got up to like fifteen thousand followers in like three days. 
At the time, I was maybe at five. And then, like, all the... And then that's when the editors peaked at calling. And then, like, two weeks later, I was down to 10,000 followers. Wow. And, like, no editors calling. But, yeah, everyone was trying to call. And they were trying to own you stuff. And that's when that whole BuzzFeed drama... Remember, they were, like, taking people's photos and just embedding them? Wow. Yeah, And man. it's like... The, one of the biggest problems of being a minority is when your minority group is, is getting beat up in the streets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's when they go, do I know any black folk? <laughs> do I know any Native Americans? Like, where are my, where are my women at? <laughs> and it's always the <laughs> most violent, fucked up situation. Yeah. And it's <laughs> always like, in a position. Let's get a black person in <laughs> Yo, and it's always like some some fucked up shit happening in the in the news. So it's like it's already something traumatic happening. And then it's like let's call a that that marginalized group of people to go and document this trauma. Same thing happened that happens with, with in our community all the time. Uh last year with all of the Asian hate happening, I saw some of my, you know, my Asian colleagues um, you know, putting out work and for them they were doing it as as a way to heal. Um, but you know, like, you know, publications were reaching out to them as well. Like, um, let's hire some Asian photographers to document what's going on. And it's like, why does that have to, why do you have to call on that group when there's some foul shit happening? We don't get to tell, like, beautiful stories. Exactly. I spoke to a bunch of editors and, because, you know, I'm opinionated. <laughs> And I was like, I, and because they were, because someone brought up the point of like, well, you know, I thought you got, you know, people want us to hire black photographers for black issues. We do. The number of photographers that I see that are out, that are these white photographers who probably were trying to steal every ounce of black culture and make it their identity. And like, oh, it drives me up the wall. But the thing with what we're asking for is, yes, we want to shoot these BLM stories because, A, we can get better stories on the ground because we relate to what people are going through on the everyday level. But you know what? I also want to shoot a dog show. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm capable of doing both. Don't just use me when my community is being terrorized. Mm Mm-hmm. My photo skill is the same at a protest as it is at, for example, I'm huge into shooting motorsports, right? Mm-hmm. I can go shoot NASCAR just as well as I can shoot a BLM protest. What I'm saying is, like, we're multifaceted. <laughs> Don't just hire, like, your that one white person you know that likes a bunch of black brands and... Is like, oh, well, like, they'll be the perfect person to come out and shoot this. Because you you could tell the difference in photos that were coming from people who cared about the people they were photographing and the ones that were like, wow, this is as close to a war zone as I'm going to get. Mm-hmm. Or look at how much internet clout I'm about to get. Yeah, man. It's... I'm not frustrating about it. It's just no, no. It's 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 frustrating. I mean, you know, it's 2022, and usually at the beginning of the year, you know, the whole month of January is, uh, you know, I speak to other black photographers, and we we gearing up to get all these calls for February. You know, so I moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, about a year and a half ago, 
And that that year was the hundred year anniversary of Black Wall Street or you know, you know, the massacre. Yes. And I don't advertise that I do freelance work. I'm able to but I don't advertise it right now because I'm one of the lucky ones that has like a staff job in insurance. But, and I do, I'll do it every now and then. But the amount my phone rang for the entire, like that week leading up to Black Wall Street. And you could hear these editors that in some cases were panicked because they forgot about it. They forgot that it happened and they were like, oh crap. And I would speak to these people and I'm like, you knew about the 100th anniversary, arguably for 100 years. (laughs) (laughs) But you knew about that that was coming up ever since, uh, what was the show? Lovecraft Country? Wait, was it that? No, that was The Watchmen. And then Lovecraft Country did something. Yeah, yeah, you're right. That, like, put put it in, like, the social sphere, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone knew, like, oh, they were like, oh, yeah, of course, Black Wall Street. But just seeing, like, how big big events like that got missed by some major publications kind of blew me away. Because it's not priority. Oh, no. It's, you know, because it wasn't February. Yo, it's not American, it's not American history to them. And, and... <laughs> They don't often want to be reminded of some of the brutality that white folks have caused black folks or any any people of color in this country. They don't want to be reminded of that. So it's easy, it, it, you know, they 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 gloss over it. You know, they forget about it. For sure. I'm like, and, and that's been kind of a struggle I've had in Oklahoma is this is the first time I've been around like reservations and so much land that's owned by like the native people. And so much like, like even the argument that I'm making of like how Black Wall Street, because there's like a college there that is kind of a useless college that is a bunch of the land that was stolen in Black Wall Street. And it's like, I'm upset, but think of how Native Americans feel. Mm-hmm. Like this whole town was there. It, it, but like in schools here, there's an argument, forget about crit- critical race theory, which is just, American history like there's debates here over how to talk about you know the black wall and the massacre on black wall street and it's like the president came here like it's a huge deal what happened here and so many people choose to just like acknowledge it every now and then and be like well you know it's so far gone let's not talk about it it's like you could have potentially have very three living survivors mm. who it was real life for them. <laughs> and so just to see how, like how quickly we miss these important events that are hard to talk about, but we remember the Nathan hot dog eating contest <laughs> and I mean, we know the exact day of the weigh in and we know Joey chestnut, <laughs> but you know, Nathan's is going to bring in more ad dollars, you know, um, being reminded of racist, a racist history in this country is not going to bring in ad revenue or ad dollars, you know? So it's like, at what point is journalism 
where where does the where does the line become like really sharp between you know photojournalism you know organic storytelling and you know a need to get sponsorship and ads and revenue you know I, but I think that's the purpose of somewhere like a newspaper. It's not, you know, what is the New York Times, all the news that's fit to print or something? I probably misquoted that terribly. I don't really remember the quote. But I think part of it is showing what happened at the, the, the you know, the Oklahoma Thunder game, et cetera, et cetera. But also jamming things into people's faces, being like, you need to care about this. You need, and that's part of what photos do so effectively. You know how many times I've read an article on the New York Times or something? Because I thought the photo was dope and clicked on it. And it was like, what's going on here? Mm -hmm. And it could be about something I don't care about or never even knew about. But I read the article and I'm like, you know what? Well, now I know that. And I think it's kind of our duty as journalists at this point to show people the the hot dog eating contest because they want to see it and it gets clicks. But those clicks make money, right? Mm-hmm. Which pay for us to go do the other stuff that is more important work and that historians will look back on. Because we're not always taking photos for the right now. For us, you know, what was it? The What did they call this summer? Or what did they call that summer in New York? Um, Black Reckoning? Yeah, Black Reckoning. It had a bunch of different names. Yeah. And like for us, that was two years ago, three years ago. A year ago, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> I'm so lost in time. It was probably a year and a half ago. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm bad with time. But for us, that was, you know, a year and change ago. But for us, but for the for, for our, your kids, my future kids, all that, that's going to be something that was 20 plus years ago. <laughs> but we have to remind people what is going on now so that it matters more in the future. And the people you used to tell those stories are so important. Because it also changes the way the person in your photograph reacts. Like, I photographed a couple of black leaders here, and they're like, you're the first black person to shoot me. And it kind of blew me away. I'm like, that's kind of weird. <laughs> it's, it's like, it's surprising, and it's not. You yeah. know? And I yeah. want to be sure, we should be getting closer to the point where it's, not surprising to have like a black photographer or a black writer do a story on a prominent black figure. Like, when is that going to be more commonplace? You know? I mean, yeah, look at Rolling Stone. That's all just white people talking about white people. <laughs> like, it, it's just, it, it, it's so interesting when it circles back the opposite way and it becomes about people of color being with people of color and being like, well, you know, come on now. And it's like, like I can connect to someone who's black and experienced police brutality on any scale better than anyone of a different makeup group. Right. And just like a black woman could relate to that better. If, if the person involved was a black woman that experienced it. Mm -hmm. Because at a different level, we, we realize, like, being black men in today's society, we're seen as a threat and dangerous all the time. And, I mean, I've had talks about that from when I was, like, 13 onward about, like, the danger of being me. 
And so that's something that's like built into like black society. And when you, and like when you and I talk and I say something like that, you don't question it. Cause you, you, you relate back to when you had a talk like that or where you were shooting an assignment and they were like, that's the guy that's a threat. And you're like the dude holding a camera. Yes. And it's, it's like baked into our DNA to just, you know, you know how many times I've walked into a store, didn't find what I was looking for and walk right out. And I'm like, yo, you know, now I'm, I just started to give a whole lot less fucks. Right. But for a long time, I'm <laughs> like, yo, how do I walk out of here in a way that doesn't make them think that I stole something? You know what I mean? And like, see, this is why I relate to you. I was at Home Depot looking for a drill, <laughs> and I must have touched 30 drills <laughs> yesterday. And obviously, I didn't steal a drill, but as soon as I met the people coming up, they, like, looked at me, and I could tell they were wondering, why is this guy walking out with nothing? Does he have something? And I'm like, well, how do I stand so that they know I don't have a, you know, a 100-pound drill with me? Yeah, Exactly. You know, it's, these are things that, you know, white folks don't have the same microaggressions. They don't have to deal with the same microaggressions that we do. And um, exactly. it affects the way we we show up in life, you know. Um, so, you know, if we are if we are that black photographer with the chip on our shoulders, like it's not coming from nowhere. It's coming from like years of years of like racism and racist experiences just baked into our DNA become defensive, you know? Well, yeah, like, so for one of the assignments I got to shoot in New York was I got to hang out with Tracy Morgan for a day. And this was after his, one of the first big media things he did after uh, the whole, the uh, that bad car accident. Yeah. yeah. And I guess they told him my name beforehand. I showed up and he was like, I was expecting a white guy. <laughs> And, but it, and, and obviously I riffed off that and we had a conversation and, but the things he was able to talk about, and he goes, you know what I'm talking about? Like just little things. He was able to open up to me a little bit more about stuff that I didn't grow up like Tracy Morgan did. I'm not a, a billionaire, you know, <laughs> comedian, but we shared enough in common that he opened up to me about like what it's been like for his recovery or like what it means to walk through his neighborhood and hear that people are proud of him. That stuff he may not share with other people that he doesn't see as having shared life experiences. And I think that's something you got to think about when I, I think that's like not a chip on our shoulder, but a weight on our shoulder that like photojournalists of color have to deal with is like going into these shoots with knowing that and knowing that we always have to deliver bigger and better than the person they could have hired to just be on the same playing field. That's, I mean, that's the pressure we put on ourselves, you know? Yeah. Like, we have to work twice as hard to get half the credit, you know? Some of the stuff I've heard of photographers, like, not showing up to shoots and being late and stuff, I'm like, if I'm not there 15 minutes early, in my mind, it's like, I'm late. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I had one assignment ever that I was 10 minutes late to. And what's the first thing the editor talks to me about? Tardiness. Yeah, and I'm like, <laughs> I live in New York City. I left 30 minutes before I was supposed to be there, and I get there 10 minutes late. That shows you how bad the trains were. Doesn't matter. And granted, doesn't yeah, matter, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. 
granted, I had a 99% accuracy rate. Doesn't matter. But and that's, that's the pressure. It's like, if we make one mistake, like, that's it. It's curtains. Boom. Shutting yeah. the door. And, yeah. you know, we have white colleagues who can make several mistakes. Curse that out. That are curse, much more important. Curse people out. Curse people out, right? And There was a photographer I heard on an assignment that was doing drugs actively at a place where it was no way it was acceptable to do drugs. Mm-hmm. And he got hired three days later for another shoot. And I'm just like, could you imagine if I did that? For real. <laughs> it's crazy. Could you yeah. imagine if it was Michael rolled a blunt and just started smoking with Tracy Morgan? I hope you did, though, yeah. man. <laughs> I hope you didn't get the light over Tracy Morgan, bro. <laughs> no, I got to see I got to see something better. I got to see him roast a bunch of like fifteen year olds for saying they wanted to become rappers and comedians. And I've never laughed so hard in my life. I d I don't know, man. I, I would have had to join join a jump in the cipher with Tracy Morgan if he if he I mean, he did, okay, to be clear, the, the there's sir I do not partake in that. <laughs> but there are certain people, if they offered it, I, you're, you're required by law to say yes. Right. There was not an opportunity. <laughs> no, that's dope, though, man. That's dope. So, um, man, so it sounds like you had a, you know, you had a really interesting experience in New York. Ups, downs, everything in between. And mm-hmm. now you're based in Tulsa. So, like, you know, what's what's going on out there? What's the work-life balance out there for you? Probably the healthiest work-life balance I've ever had. I mean, I work 10 to 6, Monday through Friday. Have you ever heard of that before? I mean, not as a photographer. I know. That's a thing. But it also, I feel like, I mean, the sun sets here normally at like 7-ish. Well, not we're not winner. So, like, I feel like I'm missing out on a lot, but it's allowed me a lot of weekends and stable income where I can focus on the stuff outside of photography. Mm-hmm. And there are some there are some things here that I would love to see change at the world. But I mean, you can say that about any paper, ask any staffer. But it's given me a lot of flexibility and also shown me a new interest of mine uh, of wanting to, to do some documentation of motorsports mm-hmm. and like the diversity in that. Because I mean, right now we got Lewis Hamilton's the greatest race car driver in the world mm-hmm. there, there's ever been. And never has there been, he's the second black driver to be in an F1 car <laughs> and he's the greatest in the world at it. So it's inspiring a lot of other people to get into a sport that is very much like photojournalism, super white male dominated. Mm-hmm. And to go in against all odds, right? Yeah. And so the, so, you know, the Tulsa world let me, you know, I have Friday to Sunday off or sorry, Friday afternoon to, you know, Sunday afternoon off. So I can go shoot races. I can go meet people. I can get into that community. I can explore. I mean, I have a race car now. <laughs> like things I would not be able to do as a freelancer because I was always wondering where the next check went. Uh, and got it's it. allowing me to kind of 
explore a life balance versus before it was like if I had a date or I had plans and an assignment came up the day before it was like, sorry, <laughs> I need to eat. Mm-hmm. But Tulsa has been cool. I guess it's cheap. You can park anywhere. <laughs> you probably forgot how to parallel park. I mean, I got good at that because no one here can do it. So there's a bunch of open spots. <laughs> crazy man so but yeah i mean it was definitely a culture shock and it's it's a place that i never thought i would want to go to and i don't know that i did want to go to tulsa oklahoma but it's given me a lot of freedom and stability that i never experienced as a freelancer because you're always waiting for your check. And as an intern, you know you're only there for three months. So you don't embed your life in the community because... It's temporary. You're temporary. <laughs> like, by the time I get to know a lot of people in this community, I'm packing up and moving out. Mm-hmm. Versus here, it's like, I'm here for the foreseeable future. Now that we didn't get bought out. <laughs> so I can, I can invest in... I have like a food garage. I have like a workbench. I have all these things that don't have anything to do with photography and photojournalism. But at the end of the day, they let me, when I have to do a uh, overtime shift or I have to get really embedded in a story, I know there's a balance to it. That's great. That's great. Which is, which is something I haven't experienced in photography and I'm kind of exploring. But I'm a person who likes to be busy, so... Most of the weekends, I'm trying to go shoot racing, be racing, or recuperating from one of the two. Nice. So it sounds like you struck that. You found a way to balance out, you know, photography with some of your other, you know, passion projects. Yeah, being able to actually have some passion projects and not just do what's required to make rent. Yeah. And, like, enjoy a Saturday off. Because as a freelancer, I expected to work any Saturday. Yeah, and if you didn't, you you felt like, damn, I just sat around waiting. Exactly. You're sitting here like you sat around waiting. Do you wait? Do you commit to having a good day? Am I going to go spend money I don't have? I mean, I'm not a I'm not competitively paid here, but I'm at a point where I made more than I made most years in New York, and I know every second, you know, every two Fridays, I'm getting paid. Mm-hmm. There's that, no that, consist- oh, that stability is, it helps it's super helpful yeah like I haven't had to call you know you know it's like you haven't had to call and be like hey your invoice is 10 days late <laughs> hey your invoice is 20 days late hey I know where you live I'm trying to eat <laughs> you go in there like ice cube <laughs> with, exactly. the, with the baseball bat <laughs> yeah. what are we doing rationing around here <laughs> Yeah, man. No, it's, it's good that you you found that stability, man. Uh, balance between making work that you need to survive, and then also work that keeps you alive. You know, that's important. You know, so Mike. So looking back at high school, Mike, just just uh, discovering photography, just discovering the camera. Um, what would you? What kind of jewels would you drop on that that younger version of yourself? based on photography 
We're going to sit down, Michael Jr. <laughs> Jr., my man. You're going to live an adventurous life. But I think I would say, I think a weirdly adult move would be get as minimum student loans as you can mm. if you're going to come into this career. And two would be just follow what you're interested in. Because I know when, when the shoot hits me on something I care about and I'm interested in, I'm, you know, I'm diving deep on it. And I think a lot of like what photojournalism was, was like, you have to do newspaper stuff, go take pictures of spot news and dump it on the photographer on your photo editor's desk and repeat and get the best photo, yada, yada, versus using all the skills you have as a photojournalist and then saying, I want to be a motorsports photographer or I want to be a fashion photographer because you can take all the skills you have, you learn from photojournalism and they can't take it away from you. Mm -hmm. And then just put a twist on it because that's what every successful photographer does. They have their background and they have their specialty. They're like Gabriella and Gotti Jones is the perfect example of this. You should have her on here. <laughs> she is did New York. She did all the big internships, did all that stuff. Right now she shoots surfing for a big personal project she's doing for herself, but she's gotten so good at it and so connected in the community that newspapers are reaching out for her, the stories and they're seeing her style of shooting, which is based on how she wants to shoot and how she wants to approach different issues and saying, we like that. Can you apply that to this? And I feel once you develop your own, what you want to do and your way of doing it, that's when more people want you for that. Cause once you prove you can do it, then everyone's like, well, now we want you to do it. And I think I spent too much time just trying to in high school and college regurgitate what I was seeing being done instead of saying, I don't care about this. Let me apply these skills to the things I care about my way and make that my style. This is Michael Noble Jr. And you're tuned in to the Black Shutter Podcast. I want to give a big shout out to everyone who tuned into this episode. Thank you for listening. The Black Shutter Podcast is hosted by me, Idris Talib Solomon. To subscribe to the Black Shutter Podcast, head over to iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. When you get there, show us some love by dropping a five-star rating or leaving a review. This will help with our rankings, which essentially helps more black photographers get exposure. Make sure to check us out online at blackshutterpodcast.com to read the show notes, learn more about our guests, and check out some of their work. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Peace. Until next time.